Well, let's pray. <laughs> Serious, let's pray. Father, we are thankful of this community. We're thankful that you revealed to us um, how to understand your word, how to apply it, how to find freedom in your word, because that's what they are. Your word is to give us freedom. But there's also burden, and there's also conviction, and there's also demand to change. I pray that as we study the word today, that your spirit moves in us, among us, that there will be conviction, and through that we find grace and we find freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, as I told you last week, that uh, we sort of went through the, the very last part of the first part, first section of Letter to Corinthians by Paul, and today we're closing that section. And you understand the theme of this section has been Paul just repeating, repeating about what? What has he been repeating? The cross. The cross. Thank you. Jesus. It's still the Sunday school answer works. He has been repeating about the cross. So he's about to close this section of his letter and we're going to go ahead and read it. Uh, so this is the First Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen to chapter four, verse sixteen, and we're going to jump into the whole other arena um, next week, uh, which is pretty appropriate because we're going to be talking about first about sex and tattoos and hair length of woman and dress and all of that, which is really relevant. But this Paul is laying this down as a foundation. We cannot understand anything that Paul talks about from this point on unless we have grasp of this, what Paul is talking about here in first four chapters. So, let's go ahead and read. I'll read one verse and you read the next. And uh, you know that I have shaped this so you understand the, the ring composition and different uh, shape of composition that Paul has used. Verse 18, Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. The wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the or the future, all belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment for the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive commendation from God. I apply all this to Apollos and myself for your benefit, brothers and For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if 
as if it were not a gift. Flip it over. Together, go. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Why apart from us you become a king? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as though sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to mortals. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are to the, present hour, to the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed and bitten and homeless. When we grow weary from the work of our own hands, when we are blessed, when persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. We have become like the rubbish of the world, the drags of all things, to this very day. We are not ready to take your shame, but to demolish you as my beloved children. For though you might have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Indeed, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I appeal to you that The word of the Lord. That closes this section of uh, the First Corinthians, his letter. So let's go ahead and tackle it. You understand that, you can see that I have divided this into two, two parts. The first page... Uh, is one part, and second page, the other side, is the part two, so that we understand the literary style that Paul has used, the composition that he's applying to this. So part one, let's go ahead and look in part one. This is verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, there's a seven parts, seven cameos is what, that, what it's called, seven parts in this, and climax is in the middle, and climax has three, divided into three parts, which is from chapter 1, verse Chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, that's the climax of it. So it goes A, B, C, D, C, B, A. It's inverted in seven parts. So first part, uh, first pair is the first and the last, the seventh part. So verse 18, it says, do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So, he's saying that about the boasting, and this isn't just about Corinthians, right? It's about us. Who, who among you not think that you're wise? Do you, um, do you think that you're fool? Or do you think that you're wise? Everyone thinks you're smart, that, you know, they're smart, right? We ourselves think we're pretty wise. I'm pretty wise, I'm pretty smart. I know what's going on, I, don't know what, I know what to do. So this doesn't apply just to Corinthians, it applies to us. But what Paul is saying here is, only the humble can obtain the wisdom, which is what? Foolishness to the world. The, uh-huh, the cross, right? Only the humble. And the best way to understand this is, it's like learning a new language. Who has ever tried to learn a new language? You have tried to learn a new language. When you try to learn a new language, even a little baby, little kids, are better than you. That's the most... You know, silly thing is like, hey, this kid can teach me. Like when you're in Mexico, you see this kid speaking Spanish, and like, man, he's, she's so great. She, I can learn from this kid. Humility is like this. It's like learning a new language. You know nothing. And in, in fact, if you think of a whole new language, you know nothing. Like we, I know nothing of 
Pick a language. Italian. Oh, well, actually, I know the Spanish. food. So. Spanish. <laughs> Spanish. Come on, I know a little. <laughs> Spanish. Um, Russian. I don't know any Russian. It's got like af- weird alphabets. Um, so when you think of new language, you're completely unfamiliar. You know nothing. You admit that you know nothing. And this is what Paul is saying. Do not boast about anything. Be humble. Admit that you know nothing. Then you can know the cross. This is really a huge problem. I can't emphasize this enough. This is a huge problem for us, especially for you young people, because you approached Christianity, you approached the Bible with notion that, I know this stuff. I'm pretty wise. I got this degree, I got that degree, I got this kind of job, I got this kind of friends. I know stuff. And what, what hinders them from really knowing the gospel, really knowing the cross, is they approach, we approach with arrogance. We're boasting about our wisdom that is not of the cross. And Paul says, stop boasting, do not boast. Verse 7, the other flip side, part 7, it says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Humility, is it goes in the same side of the coin as thanksgiving. People who know that they have received are thankful, are humble. Because they know that they received as a gift. The opposite of that are like car, like kids who drive fancy cars. You watch this kid driving like Mercedes. I had a friend in high school, he was 16, he's got like you know, 120,000 Mercedes. He was driving around. You see some of the kids driving like Acura and whatnot. I told Larry when he was like looking at his soon-to-be, maybe his car, and like, man, look at that car. That's a piece of crap. And I said, what have you done to deserve that car? Like nothing. He's done nothing to deserve it. He didn't pay for it. He's not paying for it. It's a gift, right? You look at rich kids. They, you know, they show off in the rich clothes, nice clothes and jewelries and whatnot. And there's a saying that uh, Seinfeld, um, having coffee with the comedian show, and there's a, he met with another guy and another famous celebrity and said, you know, Mike, I'm having a problem with my kids. My kids are, you know, saying, you know, I'm rich, Dad, because, you know, we have a lot of money. We have this big house and lots of cars. You know, what do you do with this? Because I want to teach my children to, you know, to be modest and to value things and not think they're rich. And Jerry Seinfeld says simply, oh, it's simple. You know, I tell them, you're not rich. I am rich. You're not. (laughs) Right? And it's true for kids. None of that belongs to them. It belongs to somebody else. And so humility is to know that we receive everything. And what Paul is saying here is, boasting before God is ridiculous because... All we have comes as gifts. We received all things from God. Now go ahead and look at the second pair, which is the second part and sixth parts, uh, which has both quotes the scripture or uh, sayings in the ancient days. The second part ends with a conclusion in verse 21. It says, So let no one boast about human leaders. And the sixth part ends with a part that says, So that none of you will be puffed up in favor of one against another. So what it's saying is because Corinthians are boasting of their leaders and themselves, how wise they are, Paul is saying, do not stop boasting. The third pair is third and fifth parts, and that highlights how the Corinthians are served. So Paul says in verse 21, he says, for all things are yours. Then Paul includes the full list of people that he included in chapter 1, Apollos, Cephas, and Jesus, and Christ, are all mentioned here. So Paul's point in this is, is this, is that, All of us, 
different leaders, whoever, whether it's Apollos or Paul or Cephas or whoever the leaders you have, they're all for you. They're gifts to you for your benefits. So there's no need for you to divide it because you have them all. You have us all is what Paul is pleading. And the climax is from verse chapter, chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. And it's in big section there. And it says verse... And Paul here just kind of bluntly concludes the whole thing and how they should see him and his leadership team. Uh, he has used so far four key words to describe the leadership in the church, himself and his colleagues. And I have listed them here. Paul and the leaders are, and to be fancy, you know, to be fancy, I had a, have a Greek words there. And the first two are from the previous section that we studied, uh, from the farming, uh, that they are servants. It says, you know, diakonoi and synagogue, which is both God's servants working together. Uh, but the third one, chapter 4, verse 1, says, uh, servants of Christ is, here is hupalitas, which is a Greek word used for assistance in, to doctors. So what it's saying is we are assistant to Christ. Um, so which means that then we, if we were assistant to Christ, then who's the boss? Christ. Jesus. Jesus is boss. So we do what Jesus tells us to do, not what you tell us to do. Churches run poorly if pastors start doing and leaders of the church keep doing what the congregation tells them to do, right? Because they're not the boss. If I tell you, if I do what you tell me to do, then I'm a poor assistant to Christ. I do what God tells me to do, just like Jesus. Jesus has so much to do, but he says, I'm done, I'm out of here. He moves away because he doesn't act according to the demand of the people. He listens and obeys God, right? who is the boss. So Paul here says that he's, he's assistant, just like Jesus was to God, assistant to Christ. Um, the last one is oikonomos, as stewards of God's mysteries. Right? Verse 2 says that it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. The translation there is trustworthy, but the Greek word is pistos, uh, which real better meaning of this translation is uh, faithful. So they are, stewards must be faithful. In, um, in biblical language and also in modern Arabic, there is no word of that is, uh, there is no meaning of honest. Uh, honest is a Greek, uh, is a Roman word uh, that's, you know, rooted in Latin and Old French and Italian and Spanish, which shows your commitment to an, an impersonal ideal. Like, I'm honest because of these things and whatnot. When you are committed to a person, it is called faithful. I am faithful to this person. Right? So the correct word here is faithful. And what's interesting here is that stewards are valued and evaluated not by what they produce, but by being, being faithful. But they also have to produce. You think of uh, Jesus' parable about the servants with talents. Some got ten, some got five, some got two, three, <laughs> or one, right? And uh, what Jesus said was, you know, good, you're faithful servants. But at the same time, these servants also produce. Producing is important, but more than that, firsthand is being faithful. Because I don't want to say, oh, you don't have to be successful, produce nothing. You do have to produce something. If you worked hard and if you're faithful, you do produce what God intended for you to produce. I don't want to say being lazy is okay. <laughs> um, 
the center of climax here is about how the servants are judged. Paul says only God judges, right? Everyone's got opinions about Paul in the church. Everyone's, you guys have opinions of me. People have opinions about you. People talk about you. People talk about me. Everyone's got opinions of everybody, right? You have opinions about yourself. So what Paul is saying here is only God judges what that means. Your worth is not by what other people tell of you or thinks of you. Or your worth is not about how you think of yourself. Your worth is by the only person, only person that judges you who is God. So Paul is saying, I don't even judge myself. I don't even take worth by how I think of myself or how others think of me or say of me. The only person who judges me, my value, my worth is only by how God judges me. You look at chapter verse 5, here it says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive commendation from God. When you take this verse to your heart, because it says two things. One coin flip side. First, it says, don't worry. You know, we are hurtful when somebody does something harmful to us. We're hurtful about someone harming us and he's against us and this person is getting away, getting away with these things. What this saying is, don't worry. It'll all come to light. There is no such thing that will go unjudged. Everyone will be judged. If they were faking it, if they were hiding it, it'll come to light. If it was just in their heart and it wasn't right, God knows the heart of this person and everybody. So what it's saying is, do not pay attention to these things. Don't worry about how other people are receiving judgments and not receiving judgment. Don't worry about it. God will judge in time, at the end, if not at the right time, and everything will come to light. The flip side of that is, worry about yourself. We hide things. We do things that are unknown. But you know what? Everything, and I believe this, everything will come to light. And if God loves us, He will make sure that everything comes to light so that we change, we correct ourselves. So that means worry. You do stuff that no one watches you, it's coming out sooner or later. If God loves you, God will make sure that it comes to light for people to know. For God to know, let you know that He knows. And if you're where, wherever your heart is, God knows. So worry, but at the time, don't worry. So here's what it's saying. When it comes to leaders, and even all of us, and all of you are either now leaders or will be leaders, we live our lives for just one person. There's only one person watching us. And you know, I'm not saying that as to be like corny, but it's really true. And this gives you so much freedom. You have one person, audience of one. The only person who judges, who the only person that's watching you and see how you're doing and how you're not doing well, and that is God. And I try to apply that to myself. If God is watching, there is it's the highest standard that I need to strive at. At the same time, there is unlimited grace. So how I'm faithful is what I'm judged by, not what I produce. But yet, I strive for the highest standard because God is the only audience. I'm not afraid of others. I'm not afraid of how people think of me because God is the only audience in my life. So I want you to take that to heart. Let's go ahead and look at part two.
And part two is verse eight to sixteen. There's again seven parts, but different composition. It has two A B A. So verse eight, verse nine is B, and t- comes back to verse ten A. And there's another part which is eleven, and then there's B, and there's A. And the last seventh part is actually the conclusion that Paul draws. And he actually, with these words, he concludes the whole thing that he's been saying in the first four chapters. So you look at first set, Paul compares Corinthians and apostles, and, uh, and climax is in the center. Uh, so the first two parts is verse 8. It says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Quite apart from us, you have become kings. Indeed, I wish that you have become kings so that we might be kings with you. This isn't true. <laughs> he's mocking them. He's using, you know, irony and sarcasm. He's being harsh at them. Oh, I wish I was kings with you because they think they're kings, right? Corinthians think they have become kings and, you know, they imagine themselves to be wise and strong and held in honor and that's what Paul is saying. Uh, and it's kind of the same thing. Look at the people in Bay Area, especially the young people. They think they have the whole world in their hand just because they have a few million dollars in their bank accounts. That's pretty good, but <laughs> just because they have this startup, this app, and they got this company, and this, uh, they act as if they're kings, and they're the most wise, and they don't need anything. That's how your friends are. That's how we are. We're not much different. Verse 10 says, we are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, you are strong, We're held, you are held in honor, we are but we in disrepute. They believe Paul and his friends are weak, foolish, dishonored. So this is more mocking. Oh yeah, you think you're all strong and we're weak. You think you're all that, but we're this. It's mocking because the opposite is true, right? Yet the true is true. They are weak, but they're held in power because of, because of God. The climax in the middle, verse 9, is showcase of I don't know why Paul has included this, but it shows some deep pain, because, and it really uh, continues on in the next part. It says in verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as, through, as though sentenced to death, because we have become spectacles of the world. Uh, you, you, we watch you know, movies of like Roman Empire, uh, like movie of you know, Julius Caesar. I have a series of Rome. Um, and you watch any kind of Roman Empire, and they go out in the war, right? They go out in the battle. They come back winning from the battle. What do you see? You see a parade, right? Some of you... Did anyone go to the Warriors Parade? Right? Okay, maybe another... Well, but you've been to these parades. I've never been to. <laughs> I don't celebrate sports teams. But you go to these parades and that's what it is, right? Romans, like, army has a parade. And in the parade, the front of the line is who? The general or the prince or the king who have won the battle in chariot, right? With trumpets blowing and then behind that is all the noble people, you know, the <coughs> priests and, uh, you know, the captains and they follow. And after that, behind them is the army, right? Army who won the battle. And after that is the, all the goods they have plundered from the battle, all the stuff that they took. They're showing up. Look at all this gold and stuff that we took. And at the very last are who? You've seen this. You've seen the movies. Who's at the very end? In little prisoners, right? Captives in little their jails. But not all prisoners. The ones that are going to die. The ones that will be publicly executed is at the end. Usually the king of the battle that they conquered or 
the generals, right? And they're either executed in public, either in like a, you know, in like by like gladiators, right? Or the lions and beasts coming and eating them and with people cheering. Look at the words of Paul. That's what Paul is saying here. He said, Paul wonders if God has formed the parade and has placed the apostles at the end of this parade as captives who are to be publicly executed. So this is some deep pain that Paul is sharing. But you, when you look at it, it's similar to what? What do we know in the Bible that is similar to this parade that Paul is imagining? I'm Hannah. Am I in the right place? What are you here for? Young life. Oh, you, um, I think they're coming to get the van. Are you getting the van? Yes, but I was told to meet upstairs in the conference room. No, <laughs> this is not conference room. Uh, okay, it's okay. See ya. <laughs> we are kind of young life, but okay. So, what does this remind you of? Something like this happens in the Bible. It's similar to crucifixion of Jesus. Was Jesus going up to the cross of parade? It is right. Jesus is being taken up, humiliated in public. He's being taken up. Jesus was in a Roman parade that ended up with his death in public place. So Paul is returning to the theme of the cross with his own participation in the suffering of Christ. It's amazing. You see, you read Paul and in other letters, he says things like in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share his sufferings, become like him in his death. That is deep. He says he finds the likeness of Christ in his suffering, in the cross. This is how Paul feels and he's sharing his feelings with his readers because he's connecting to the suffering of Jesus. You have a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is another great book if you want to read it. It's very short. Meditation on the cross. Bonhoeffer is the one who, to share with Christ's suffering, he was released from what camp? Nazi prison. Nazi prison. Right, the camp. Uh, imprisonment camp. Right, imprisonment camp, and he went back, right, to reach out to those, and he died at the camp. Right, Bonhoeffer writes that human beings are called to suffer with God's own suffering caused by the godless world. Paul's doing that. Second set, you look at Paul, here he's looking back over his ministry at large. So he's going a little more over of what he shared in verse 9. He describes their condition, all the apostles, in, in part 4 and 6. Verse 11, he says, To the present hour we are hungry and thirsty, to we are poorly clothed, as in half-naked, and bitten and homeless, like for real, homeless, no home, right? Verse 12, And we grow weary from the work of our own hands. Um, and later on, part 6, we have become like the rubbish of the world. Other translation is scum of the world. There's actually a church that's called Scum of the World Church in Colorado. Uh, I don't know if it still exists, but it was like 10 years ago. Uh, bunch of, it's a church for a bunch of skaters and addicts and whatnot. Uh, the dregs of all things to this very day. So these two words... Scums and drags are, it's what it's saying is these are stuff that's thrown out after cleaning. It's like the worthless, worthless thing ever possible are the scums and drags. It's like dirt and 
whatever the stuff that's left when you clean and you throw it out. He said, that's how we are. That's how we are. And again, this is a comparison with the passion of Christ, right? Passion of Jesus. The climax, verse 5, part 5, which is uh, part of verse 12 and 13, says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. This is as wrong as it's supposed to sound to the worldly ears. In tradition, Middle Eastern culture and elsewhere, retaliation is considered one of the marks of honorable thing. You're respected when you retaliate, right? Aristotle agreed that you know the great highest virtue includes unwillingness to endure insult. Yeah, for centuries, Islamic world has it's known that they have a have granted right and from the duty of taking revenge to preserve honor, right? I mean, in Chinese, Asian culture too. You watch Chinese movies. What's the main theme in Chinese movies? Revenge, right? Oh, it killed my parents. I'm going to go kill everybody. Right? Revenge. It's, it's, it's the virtue. It's the honor of a thing. Even in Asian culture, even for Jewish community, you know, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, it's the sacred law to be observed. Right? So this is nonsense. Paul is saying, when we're insulted, we bless. Right? It's a problem for me. I, I can. You know, this is a hard thing. The other day, we were coming around, there's a, you, take a, you, know, you, you take a ride in Riviera, and you put that U-turn, right? You, you make U-turn. I don't know if some of you done it. There's some people who honks at you, right? Someone honked at me. I stopped the car. I got out of the vehicle, right? Went to the person, to the person, he's like, he got 911 on his phone. He's like, are you going to hit me? Because I'm going to call cops right now. I'm going to call cops right now. I'm like, I'm not going to hit you. just want to talk to you. Um, say, I'm going to call cops if you're going to hit me. Uh, like, I have a temper, <laughs> right? I wasn't going to hit the person, but I need to confront when someone does something that's insulting or wrong. It's hard. It's hard for everyone, right? It's hard for all of us. And Paul says, this is how we are. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. All of us too, you know, we all taught to stand up for yourself, get back at them. But Paul, you know, going back to what he wrote, he has the mind of Christ. And mind of Christ and knowing the life of Jesus, his sacrificial life, points Paul to a new direction, upside down mind. Now the conclusion, which is the uh, the very last part, we have become like uh, the first, verse 14 says, I am not writing this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So he's softening up a bit, right? He's getting a little soft up a bit. He says, verse 15, for though you might have 10,000 guardians in Christ, guardian here is a word for, in the Greek society, there were uh, servants in the house whose duty was to watch over the children and teach children. Right? That's what it's saying, guardians uh, in the house. Right? Uh, but you do not have many fathers. Right? You can have as many servants who take care of you and look for you, but they're not even close to be, having, being a father, right? having a father. Indeed, the Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. We talked a little bit about this. Um, father cares more than anyone else, right? And you imitate Father. And that's what he's leading into in the next verse. It says, verse 16, I appeal to you then, 
be imitators of me. Paul was a Pharisee. He knows where. So the setting that he comes from is when you're a Pharisee, you start as a student at a very young age, like eight, nine, even younger. And you live a life where you live with your teacher, a rabbi. That's why disciples call Jesus Rabbi, Rabbi. And what did disciples do with Jesus? They lived with him, right? They were with him all the time. And what the students do is they watch teacher, rabbi, and they imitate. Oh, this is how he does when this goes. This is how he does when this happens. He's, so he says, be imitators of me. And, you know, we may consider Paul arrogant to say, imitate me. But the truth is, Paul is simply redirecting their focus. The things that they imitate. Because, you know, we imitate. That's, it's who we are. Right? We imitate. We are copycats. Even now, like we imitate. I try to look at you guys. You guys imitate. Like, isn't it that, when you have a conversation with somebody, you're face to face, what do you do? I'm very conscious of this. The, the other person goes like this, and you go like this, and you, I'm very conscious, so I like, put my hand down, cross the leg, you cross the leg. <laughs> right? Right? You tilt this way, and you know, the other person tilts this way. We, that's who we are. We're copycats. We imitate. Right? And you look at fashion, we imitate, you know, some imitate others and, you know, we make fun of how, oh, this person was trying to imitate this person. And for some of us, we imitate like fashion magazines, we imitate fashion, like you walk into, you know, dot, uh, app, startup, and everybody's dressed the same, everyone's wearing this type of shirts, right? <laughs> right? There was like a, you know, I see some of the pictures in, the, in like app, you know, startup company, all the guys are wearing this type of shirt with all folded up and jeans, tight jeans. and We imitate. That's who we are, right? The way we talk. Like, where we learn to imitate. Like, my generation, uh, my you know, roommates in college, we imitate Seinfeld. Like, our humor is Seinfeld humor. Or the Simpsons humor. Right? Because we all learned to be how, how to be funny from watching, like, the Simpsons. And, and, you know, Seinfeld, which is good. Like, South Park was one of it, but it's still going strong. So, some of you... So this is where we learn how to talk, or rappers and, and celebrities. What's that guy that Lawrence was listening to? Oh my goodness. Kanye West. Kanye West. You know, but it's dumb, but that's who we are. We copy, we imitate, right? The way we act, like Hannah, there's like, look at you, you know? You do, like, when I came to the States, I watched, uh, you guys don't know this, there's a, a TV show, like, we all copy TV show, like, I think older crowd, like, copied, um, Saved by the Bell, right? Oh, yeah. Zach in the Saved by the Bell. Me, growing up, I copied the, forget the name of the person, the Silver Spoons. Have you watched Silver Spoons? Silver Spoons was a TV show with something Schneider. Um, no. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, but, like, I, I grew up watching, oh, I can dress like him, I can talk like him, he's popular in school, it shows great. You know, I, you know, imitated people who I think will benefit me receiving what I want, being popular and, you know, making friends and you know, looking cool, right? That's, that's what middle school students do, even elementary school nowadays, right? Whether it's, you know, friends or, you know, your friends. So you copy your friends too. Oh, look at that guy. I can act like him. You know, that's what we do. We copy. That's why you look at a bunch of friends. They act alike. They dress alike. Like, wow, you guys are all friends, right? Because you all act like it. You talk like one another and you dress like one another. 
you know, married couple, they become like each other. Like, man, you guys are like, not only do they become to look like each other, they act alike, talk alike. Because we copy each other. That's, that's who we are. You, we imitate something, someone, some ideas. You know, as a children, you imitate your parents, even whether you know it or not. Like Hannah does things like, where she get from? Where did she get that from? Like, oh, me. <laughs> like there was a part where Hannah like yells, right? No, you do this. And Esther realized, that sounds like somebody. <laughs> me. So I realized, oh, I need to watch myself, how she copies me, right? Siblings, whether you hate each other or love each other, you imitate each other, right? I can meet some of your siblings and, man, this guy, he, she talks just like you. <laughs> You're kind of the same. You look at Botch, who's not here, uh, Botch talks just like his dad. <laughs> exactly the same, right? That's who we are. We imitate. So Paul is not saying this out of blue, saying imitate me. He's saying you're imitating the wrong stuff. You're imitating the world, the sophists, the philosophers, politicians, gladiators, whatever the popular figure might be. That's who you're imitating. So he's saying, no, turn from those and imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, we're not different. We imitate the world. Who's that guy again that Lawrence copies? Kanye West. Kanye West. <laughs> we imitate the world, not only the external behavior, but our internal behavior, as in our, our thoughts, thinking process, what we value, we imitate the world. We become like the world. Or we are already like the world. Even in our relationships and economy, how we values things and you know shares and thinks of our what we have what we don't have yesterday I was at a wedding um, it wasn't a very good wedding <laughs> it's a wedding by my very very beloved kid I grew up watching ever since he was like three years old and I love him to death but you know I want to smack him <laughs> because it, it was a wedding he invited like 300 people and it was like in the park on a picnic table he gave like box sandwich what are you doing? You know? Why don't you just go and if you want to save money, go have a wedding at you know City Hall, City Hall and come and celebrate with people in a you know mild manner if you like to. I mean it was kinda of ridiculous. We were standing around for like two hours because they were still packing the box lunch. It wasn't even packed. Um, but it was okay because there were I was like one of the older people. Like there were a few adults and it was all like his age, which is late twenties, like mid twenties and late twenties. And I look at them, and I see the world. They were dressed like, you know, startups. Oh, you know, <laughs> tight, tight, you know, the slacks, yep. and with the tucked in, nice tight shirt with rolled up shoulders, <laughs> opened up, and, you know, hair combed over, and just like that, right? They, you know, and I saw them, and I told Esther, like, look at them, they're, they're like, how do we reach out to them? In, and I had a conversation with uh, another young person this week. I met with him. Um, and he shared. And, and some of the things he shared was, you know, I you know, I can do whatever I want. I don't need to change myself. You know, environment, my settings work work for me. I just need to find the right setting and I'd be fine. You know, and my thoughts are, I don't need to change myself. I, I look at them and they're, I realized that even us in this room, we are... Corinthians. 
it's amazing. 2,000 years ago, there was this church. And these are church with the young people who got to the big city, who's ready to make big money, who think they're all that, who's copying everything that they think is cool in the world, that'll get them further, get them what they want. This is us. This is you guys. I saw whole 300 of them yesterday. And it was hard for me because they're so arrogant, so zealous for wisdom of the world and who to belong and who to be a part of. They think they have it all and you watch the... I talk with them and they have speeches in the wedding and stuff and they're so immature. They're all like babies. And they're so not ready to learn from anybody. They say, we got this. That's us. That's you guys. You guys are Corinthians. We are Corinthians. And you got a whole lot of them out there. But, you know, at the same time, while they're acting that way, I see a lot of fear. Because it's so competitive, the world. The world that you guys are in is so competitive. There's very little hope, and you feel lost. And you grew up knowing very little of what it means to be loved. You don't know how to receive love. So you give a lot of love to things that are like non-profits and, you know, giving away to doing charity works and stuff. But it's because you haven't been loved properly. So there's a sadness. Yet I see so much of wisdom, I mean the arrogance like the Corinthians. And, you know, especially those who say they follow Jesus. I think a lot of them go to church. And, you know, I think I'd die. <laughs> I think I'd cry if I ever walked into, like, church in San Francisco, like, Epic. Or, what's another one? Reality. Reality. I think I'd just cry. Because I walk in and see all of these guys who think they're so mature. He has a false sense of spiritual maturity. You look at them, they're so lost. What do we do with these people? So, like, going through this yesterday, it really makes me depressed <coughs> and sad. It's kind of like my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> I look at my backyard, and I'm depressed. It's, it's, a, it's so dirty, so, such a messy, right? But yet, there's so much potential. <laughs> Like, and there's so much work to be done, but no laborer, no one to come and do the work. That's how I feel about your generation. It's like my backyard, mess, with great potential and not enough hands to work. So, you know, what do we do? You know, what do I do as your leader? I love going through this part of First Corinthians. I think I'm the one who benefited the most because I learned so much and I received so much. And I think Paul's been a great teacher and he, his answer is really the only answer to your generation, to us, in myself as, as your leader. And the answer here is, what? The cross. It's the cross. I mean, you read this through and you wonder, like, why is he keep going about this cross? But look, listen to what, think about what Paul has said so far. Here's what he has said so far up to this point in his, in his letter to Corinthians. He said, you're all full of it. You're arrogant, you're immature, and that's why you're all divided. And Christ, but Christ isn't divided. You don't really know Jesus. 
That's what it's showing because you know God the best on the cross because that is God who is loving, gracious, sacrificing. And we're saved by cross and cross holds the most power and the wisdom. And knowing Jesus on the cross is the greatest power and wisdom you can possibly have. Yet, you don't know the cross because the way you are. Look at you. You are arrogant. You are divided. You think you have it all. And you don't have the spirit to tell you. You don't let spirit to teach you about the cross. So you're still like babies when you should be grown-ups. Look at yourself. You're fighting, thinking you're better than the other. And, you know, that's really the sign that you don't know the cross. Because if you knew the cross, you'd be the opposite. And that opposite is like me. That's why he's talking about himself. If you know the cross, you'll be like me. Not living for myself, sacrificing, suffering like Jesus, serving like Jesus, humble like Jesus, yet powerful like Jesus, honor like Jesus, taking up my own cross like Jesus. See, Paul circles back around to the cross. So when Paul says, imitate me, he's not saying, you know, imitate my teaching style, the way I dress, the way I talk, and how I don't do, you know, sin, and how I'm perfect, and how I'm gentle. And he's not saying any of that. What he's saying when he says, imitate me, is he's saying, imitate how I carry my own cross. Imitate how I show that I get the cross. And you know, I realize that we can't be like Paul overnight. But we can take step by step. You know, when I tell you that imitate me, you know, I don't mean, you know, imitate like stuff I do, you know. I don't imitate me, how I talk, how I dress, or how I walk around in my towel after shower, or not without shower. You know, I don't mean any of that. What I mean is imitate how I live my life like Jesus. How I serve Jesus. How I chase after Jesus. Watch how I live. And it's not just me. Among yourselves too. You have plenty to offer to others where you can learn from each other. I learn from you. You don't have it all perfect. Not everything is something to be imitated after. But some of you like Mile. He's always serving. He's always ready to serve. That's the first thing in his mind. Randy... Read the newsletter and read the book. <laughs> you know? Um, Jan is always giving gifts to some of you guys. I don't know anyone of you who gives gifts. Right? There's stuff to be imitate after. Eddie has the zeal and he's always right after responding. You know, the little things, all of you, have stuff for us to imitate after, to grow closer to God. But it all starts from knowing the cross. To know the cross, you have to be here. <laughs> you know, that's why, you know, I say that your commitment to the community is your first step to committing to Christ. Because if you don't commit to community, then you would know, there's no way you get to know the cross. You have no one to imitate. You have no one to teach you. It's the first visible signs of taking up your own cross. My dad um, knew this person in Korea, and uh, this person, he was like a deacon, uh, as an elder in the church, but 
his grandmother told him to do three things in his life and and he promised. She told this to him in deathbed and he kept it. And he said, she said, you got to promise to do three things in your, life, in your life. Number one, go to church every Sunday. Number two, sit in the front pew. <laughs> Randy? <laughs> Number three, tithe. He said, I don't care whether you're spiritual, whether you believe or anything, you're going to promise me you do three things. If you do these three things, then you know the cross. Eventually, you'll get to know the cross. Go to church every Sunday, sit in the front, which means try to listen. He said, tithe. Because that's going to be the magic. When you give, you know how much God gives you. There's no way you do these three things. There's no way you'll be left alone. God will chase after you and He will reveal the cross to you. So take time to reflect on what the cross means to you. If you don't tear up at the sound of the cross, you don't really get the cross. I mean, you know, I went to seminary and I was learning all these things and I met somebody on the airplane and this is an old man who was multimillionaire. He retired early because he got to know the cross. He gave away all his stuff away. He's traveling, giving stuff away. And he's sharing what his wife and he's doing. And, and he shared the cross. He shared, but you know, I, Jesus died for me, for my sin. And he tears up, like in the plane. I'm embarrassed, right? And he did, old man who's been Christian for 20 years, who's been doing all these things, he's just tearing up, talking about Jesus on the cross. And I wonder, like, why, you know, I already know this stuff. But I also thought, like, will I ever come to this place? If you don't tear up, if the cross doesn't mean to you, you really haven't got to know the cross. And you need to hunger for that. Because the cross leads you to taking up your own cross. Living the way, surrendering yourself. You know the songs, the cross, Chris Tomlin? At the cross? How does it go? The cross at the cross. I surrender my life. It's at the cross. I owe all to you. I give all to you. See, he copied off a part of a hymn, an old hymn by Isaac Watts. It's called At the Cross. He copied it off. Fanny Crosby, another incredible hymn writer in 18th century, 1850s, she wrote this. Now, she's huge. She wrote so many hymns that we know. And here's what she wrote. Listen to this. In the autumn of 1850, revival meetings were held in the 13th Street Methodist Church in New York City. Some of us went down every evening, and on two occasions, I sought peace at the altar, but did not find the joy I craved, until one evening, November 20th, 1850. It seemed to me that the light must indeed come then or never. And so I rose and went to the altar alone. After a prayer was offered, they began to sing the grand old consecration hymn, Alice. And did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? That's the verse of the hymn at the cross. And when they reached the third line of the fourth stanza, she says, Here, Lord, I give myself away. That's the song. My very soul was flooded with celestial light. I sprang to my feet shouting hallelujah. And then for the first time, I realized that I had been trying to hold on to the world in one hand and the Lord the other. And here's the... Uh, Fourth stanza, it goes like this. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. 
It is all that I can do. Matt Redman modified this hymn, and we're going to sing it after communion. And next week, because it's first Sunday, we're going to you're going to learn the whole hymn of this song. So, you know, concluding this part, I know I went a little long, but you know, it's the cross. If it doesn't lead you to praising, overwhelmed, and jumping up your feet, you don't know the cross. And I want you to crave for it and thirst for it and ask for it and get to know the cross. And the cross is this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us to take away our sin. And He gave us a way to be with God. And from that, we have hope and joy and eternal life. Let me pray. Jesus, we, I pray that you will show us the cross and that it will change our lives forever. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.